Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Thanks for joining us this morning, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're going to go ahead and get started with worship, so would you mind standing as we get started? Thank you. 
Would you pray with me, please? Glory be to you, Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, just as it was in the beginning, so it is now, and so it shall be forevermore. We stand in awe of how you have blessed the La Jolla Christian community. Though the past two years have been challenging, with your help, we have both survived and thrived as a believing flock safe in your sheepfold. As a community of believers, we are identified by love that we show one another. Sometimes, however, we may fall short in showing such love, and so forgive us, Father, just as we forgive others who might likewise sin against us. We thank you, Father, for being willing to come down in the person of Jesus the Christ and to share the same hardships we endure on a daily basis, but without sinning. He has set the example for us to follow, and we thank you for continuing to help guide and direct us to live in accord with your will. We know that it is your will that we seek out a community of Christians who will regularly gather together to stir up love and good works, especially as we see the day approaching. We pray for your blessing on this church community and others like it, wherever they may be meeting. We ask that we all might grow in grace and knowledge and for the Holy Spirit to enable us to share with others the good news of your appointed king and his coming kingdom. We especially ask your blessing to be with those in the Ukraine who are experiencing the horrors of war as we speak. We pray that you will protect them from the devil's forces of evil and grant them the peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what their circumstances. All these things we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, hey. Sorry, Jay. Good morning. There we are. Well, my name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the director of youth ministries here at La Jolla Community Church, and I want to welcome you all to our wonderful service this Sunday morning. I don't know if you had noticed, but it's gotten a little bit warm outside, which means our, a lot of our students are ending their school year. I know San Diego County ends their school year on Tuesday. So if you know a parent with a lot of young kids, maybe say a little prayer for them on Tuesday as the summer begins um, and a lot of these students go uh, back home for the summer. So please say a little prayer for our families as students graduate and uh, figure out what to do for the rest of the summer. Um, but like I said, my name is Ryan Sylvia. You should have received one of our fun little bulletins on your way in, and you may not have even noticed, but right in the middle, there's a perforation, and you could tear the top half off. My hope and my prayers, you would take this top half, and you would invite somebody to church. You would let them know some of the wonderful, fun things that are going on here at La Jolla Community Church. Like right on the back, we talk about our conversations. I don't know if you know, but we, after our first service, go outside for a brunch, and then we come back in here, and we get in little study groups, and we go, and we have conversations together. Uh, Scott is going to lead us in some fun conversations today. So if you would like to join on that, please stay after the service, but take this top half home, invite somebody to the fun things that we're doing here. The best way that we can grow and connect with one another is to invite our friends. So please take a moment, take this piece home, and invite somebody to church. 
This bottom half, that is for us here at La Jolla Community Church. I promise I won't be offended if you're filling it out while I'm talking. But this part says get connected with us. This here at La Jolla Community Church is how we get you plugged in and engaged in our various ministries here. If there's a ministry you would like to be a part of or an event that you would like to jump in on, please take a moment, fill this out. Let us know how you would like to be involved. We've got a lot coming up this summer. So please take a moment, fill that out. And if you flip it over right on the other side, it says, let us pray for you. We at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. Ryan's got a little back injury I've been dealing with. And Janet, right when I walked in the door, she was laying hands on me and praying on me. It was absolutely wonderful. We at La Jolla Community Church believe and understand in God's power. So please, if you've got something going on in your life, maybe you have a friend who's struggling with something, or you have a wonderful thing that has happened to you, please let us praise God with you. So take a moment, write down what's going on in your life, write down how we can pray for you, and go ahead, you can drop off the prayer and connect card along with your offering envelopes in the baskets on your way out. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us on this wonderfully warm Sunday morning. With that, I would love to invite Scott up to lead us in a message. Hi, folks. Morning. My name is Scott. It's good to be here. Good to be back. Uh, I just flew in last night. I'm not going to do one of those jokes. Just flew in. My arm's a little tired. Uh, I took my youngest daughter. She's eight. We went to a concert in Denver. And uh, my sister lives in Denver. And there's this band that I've been listening to for years. And she's always in the back seat. So she's falling in love with this band. She knows all the words. And my sister had texted me maybe a month ago saying, hey, we're going to this concert. I, I, we were in a, a conversation about other things, and I said, oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. And she said, why don't you guys come? As almost a joke, you know, things you say to people, hey, you should come. And uh, she didn't know this, but we put an entire home remodel, thanks to State Farm, on a Southwest card. So we've got, if anybody wants Southwest miles, you can have them. I mean, we, we could live on the plane for a year and not pay a dime. So I instantly went on Southwest and found a flight to Denver, and it was the last day of school for our our, our little ones on Thursday, so me and Jane went out to Denver, and uh, we got to the concert on, uh, was it Friday night, and there's 18,000 people there, and it was, you know, you, you try not to imagine that beforehand. If you've been to a show like that, you'd know there's just a ton of waiting around. There's, we got to the line, and it was actually three quarters of a mile long just to get in because they have security, and, and we're with these three little kids, my two nephews, my daughter. And, you know, we're just, it's exhausting to be parents at a, we shouldn't have done this. That's kind of the vibe we're getting uh, two hours into this late, late night. And I remember there's one point where uh, there's hardly even, we're in the lawn up at top, the back of the back of the place, and there's not even grass that you can see. There's so many people packed in here. They say it's 18,000. It felt like 30,000 people there. And at one point I was so exhausted. I was just leaning down like this. And for about 10 minutes, <laughs> in between bands, and I look over at one point, and there's a guy just walking through. We're right in the, in the way where people walk through. There's a guy walking through with two drinks in his hand, and I look at him and instantly recognize him. And I say, hey, Joe. And Joe looks at me and goes, Scott. And we hadn't seen each other in 15 years. And uh, Joe and his family lived in Ranch Bernardo 15, 16 years ago, and uh, he was a pastor of a church, Presbyterian church that we were going to, and when we first had a kid, we didn't know anybody who had kids. We didn't know anybody. We were married younger than all of our friends. We had kids way before uh, anybody else did, and this was the one family that we knew that had kids. They had two of them older than ours, and Joe and his wife, Ann, just, they literally took us under our wing. I never touched a baby in my life until my own son was born. And uh, Joe became a golf buddy, became a mentor, uh, and became a mentor to my wife. We spent so much time with them, and then they just moved one day. 
And we never saw each other since. Until that day, and I'm like, hey, Joe. <laughs> and maybe you've had moments like that where you run into a friend that meant a lot to you. Maybe it's a reunion. Maybe when you go back home. And there's, there's just something special about moments like that. People that have meant something to you. People that you've shared life with. And maybe you don't, the time passes. And those moments of reunion, just, they mean so much. And it reminded me of a moment. I, I would say, you know, I've had, <laughs> I've had children. I've been married. Uh, but this is maybe one of the best moments of my life. Uh, don't tell my wife. So we were uh, in college. And my friend uh, Nick and I, best friend from growing up, had decided almost as a joke, what if we studied abroad together this summer in Italy? and convinced our parents that we needed to do this to get the units we needed to graduate on time. And it all worked out. Until the day before we were set to leave, and Nick had, uh, in a basketball game, pickup basketball game, done something to his knee, and the doctor, the first MRI said, we think you tore your ACL. And it was literally the day before we left for the entire summer, rooming together, traveling, you know, the Euro, Eurail passes, like the whole, like, we're going to go find ourselves in, in Europe this summer together. And Nick calls and says, I, I, I don't think I can go. And this is uh, 2001, so this is before cell phones. This is really before we were doing emails. And uh, when, when he said, I don't think I can go, I mean, I was crushed. I mean, this is the whole plan, the whole summer. And even my parents were like, I don't think you should go without him. It doesn't make any sense. But it had already been paid for, non-refundable. This. So I'm going. And Nick said, if I can make it, if I can make it, I'll be there in three days. And in three days, at 5 p.m., we'll meet in the steps of the Duomo in Florence, Italy. And if I'm not there, I'm not there the whole summer. And so, of course, I'm sitting there at the steps of the Duomo at like 2 (laughs) o'clock. Nick, please. I mean, I'm praying, God, please send Nick. Fix his knee. He's always been a hypochondriac. It's not a big deal. Come on. And I'll tell you, it was like 527 when Nick comes around the corner of the Duomo with crutches. It is, I mean, one of the greatest moments of my life, like to see him. If there had been slow romantic music, you would have seen me just run. <laughs> Nick. And then night, that, the, the, that night when we uh, had dinner on one of those little piazzas and we're drinking a, a glass of wine, we just turned 21, we're trying to pretend like we enjoy wine and, and, and there's this downpour outside and we're just getting soaked and, and we're just laughing, like just absolute joy and glee. And he and I many times have said, Whatever heaven's like, it's got to be a touch of that, that, that reunion. And maybe, again, you've had a moment like that where you've connected with someone and, and you just know you're sharing something and everything is right and good. We all also know the opposite. We know the opposite experience of that, the, uh, the, the, the feelings of isolation. I remember uh, uh, it was when I was uh, first going to college, I went to USD and USD back in the day, back in the day, used to have this, uh, they, they had designed this orientation program to get students comfortable and familiar with the campus and create connection and belonging. And they had created this orientation that they have since cut off because so many kids had actually uh, left because it was an eight-day orientation before classes started. Eight days of activities, uh, absolute introverts, nightmare like me. Like you just go from event to event and you go to Padres game on a bus and then you go and have a barbecue and a luau and then a boat cruise around the harbor. And I mean, I, if, if I could have designed it, it would have been just send me to class. And then, then you kind of get the lay of the land. But they had eight days of social events. And I did my best to do all of them right. 
I overrode my sense of like introversion constantly for eight solid days, hung out with neighbors and, and roommates and, and, and people in the dorm and gone to every single event and had all those terrible small talk conversations. And I'd imagine, because I'd had friends who had gone to college two or three or four weeks before I did, and hearing them say, college is the best, college is amazing, I love my roommates, I'm having so much fun. Uh, you know, we found out the 10-year reunion, everybody was lying, but it sounded at the time like if you don't find your people, then what is the point of college? What, you know, if you don't find and connect and find your tribe and your crew and, and you don't get in the fraternity or what, so eight days of just agonizing social events, on the eighth day, I woke up with this terrible stomach pain. And long story short, it turned out that my appendix was about to explode. And I spent all day in the emergency rooms. It was a Labor Day, and my sister, older sister, had to drag me to the emergency room because mommy had called her and said, go get him and take him to the emergency room. And uh, as I'm going into surgery, I remember asking the doctor, so when, when uh, I, I mean, tomorrow's the first day of college, <laughs> uh, you know, am I out of here at 5 a.m., 7 a.m.? He said, no, no, you have to go home for a week. You go home for a week. And I, and I said, no, no, college starts tomorrow. And he said, you won't be able to stand up straight. You can't go to college for a week. And it was a week later, again, this is pre-emails or text messaging, and we had just done AOL Instant Messenger, if you remember that. But I didn't really know anybody yet. We had, I'd known them by their first names, like John from Seattle and Mark from Chula Vista, we didn't know each other yet. We hadn't really built any friendships. And I remember coming back a week later, the following Sunday, to, with my laundry bag and all my stuff that I'd taken home, uh, kind of packed up an emergency. And I come back, and I'm, and I'm walking through the dorm. And I'd spent seven and a half days with all these guys. And they had now uh, moved on. I, I always wondered what they thought happened to me. Like, I just disappeared. I didn't tell an RA. I didn't tell anybody. There was no one to call. There was no one to tell. I just disappeared. And I'm walking through, and if you can imagine the scene, if you've ever been to a college campus in a dorm, you see all these doors open, especially guys' dorms, and the smells coming out. And, and, and every guy is just kind of like, I don't know, studying or playing video games or uh, doing push-ups or something. And, and I'm walking through, and these guys next door to me, the guys I'd spent the most time with, are in their dorm, door open, and I walk through, backpack, laundry, and I do like that classical, like, what's up, guys? And I'm, I don't know, imagining, I don't know if I expected uh, this great reunion or, or at least some, somebody to come, hey, where have you been? But instead, they just stood there and they just gave me like the head nod back. Like, hey. And so I just keep going because my destination is my room. And I get to the door and I'll never forget, I'm putting the key in the door. And I overhear just, you know, a few feet away, one of the guys say, yo, you know that kid? And the other guy says, nah, you? And then I just put, you know, door open, go in and unpack stuff. And I think if, if who I am now would go back in time, I, I, I would probably be like, you know, rewind. Hey, guys, me, you, I bet you like forgot me, huh? I, I, I had surgery. Did you think I died? Did you think I disappeared? A UFO took me? I, I'm back. And I would, just would have corrected the situation, but I didn't. Because I had this whole story that was created in that moment. And the story was some version of forgettable, uh, neither here nor there, um, 
not worthy of remembrance, I mean, just valueless, like that. And that had been the sort of theme in the back of the mind since probably middle school. Like, nice guy, but he smiles a lot. What, it, what is he about? What does he do? What is he? And, and I just walked into the dorm, sat down, and that really became my freshman year. Uh, trying, to, trying to muster the, the energy to push through that sense of, well, no one really wants me here anyways, and I'd still go to the parties. I'd still go into the dorm room and say, hey, guys, and try to sit down and play video games. But it just was a- agonizing the entire year. I remember the end of the year when we're all, we had, by that time, I think they knew my name, uh, by the end of the year, and we're all packing up and, and talking about the summer and, and who's going to live where next year and, and kind of like, hey, yeah, let's, let's, let's connect over the summer, that kind of conversation. I remember getting into my car and driving away and thinking, if I don't come back, the same exact thing will happen. Uh, no one will notice. And then as I'm driving, I remember I had the, think, the thought, it wasn't just a, a kind of a martyr syndrome. It was, I, I don't think I would miss them either. Uh, and, and, and I sat with that all summer. What do you do with that? I knew I had options. The options were to go somewhere else, try somewhere else. I, I, I've worked with college students since then. For 20 years, I've worked with college kids. I, I've known so many students who leave, and I've noticed that they never leave. They never transfer, at least my little poll of, of hundreds of, and thousands of college students, they, they, I've never seen one leave because they didn't have the right major. I've never seen a student transfer because uh, they just didn't find the right mentor or the career services weren't adequate enough or the food wasn't really up to par or the, the, the intramurals, didn't, they didn't have, I don't know, underwater basket weaving. They, they didn't leave for those reasons. They leave 100% of the time because they didn't find people that they connected to. That's it. And despite their best efforts, eight days of orientation, it wasn't the right context, just surface-level conversations for me to really feel like I connected with people. What we're talking about this morning, what Steve invited me to come talk about is about community, designing your life in Christ in the context of community. And there are so many things to talk about. I'm not going to talk about most of them. We're going to talk about one specific thing today, and we're going to look at a couple stories in Scripture. Uh, What I want to talk about is this idea of uh, uh, who is with you. And who are you with? Who, is, who, is, who, who do you belong to? Uh, in in the, the company that I run, is curriculum predominantly for uh, students in schools. And we talk about three core pillars, three, three concepts of how do you design a life that's really meaningful. And I've really done a lot of work to translate the way I understand uh, who God is in Scripture to uh, be able to work and, 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 and have some street cred inside public schools and, and those sorts of places that wouldn't value biblical language. And I really spent a lot of time thinking about the concepts of faith, hope, and love. And we've translated those into talking about these conversations of identity and, and purpose and belonging. And I've, and I've pulled those terms, not just working with students, but working with military. We've had this opportunity to work with transitioning uh, military, particularly from special forces. And what I've learned, working with about 1,500 of them, walking through the uh, wrapping up their military service to go transition to the civilian world, it's those three significant pillars that are the things to talk about, the big conversations around who am I now? I, I know the role that I had. I knew my identity. I knew the uniform. I knew the, the rank and the, and, and, the, and the role and the position. I, that was my identity. And now that's, you know, that, that uniform goes now into a box in the closet. So no, what's my new identity? And we help veterans and we help students put that together. Figure out who you are and figure out what you believe in and your values and those sorts of identity questions. 
And then, especially for the veterans, talking about a purpose, and you, know, you literally have a mission. It's explicitly clear, and those missions change, but you've got a role and a function to play within a mission, and then we help translate the skills you've had, the experiences you've had to the civilian world and have a new vocabulary for that. And we do the same thing for students. What's your mission going to be? What problems are you going to solve? What, what value do you have to bring? What talents do you have? Uh, and, and if you don't have a sense of purpose, it really turns into a sense of hopelessness. I, I have nothing to give. I have nothing to contribute. So what's the point? I, I lack hope for tomorrow. But the biggest one, the most important one, particularly for special forces and especially for students, is the belonging stuff. It's the idea of love. Uh, that's why Paul in the Bible says the greatest of these is love. Uh, and I've found that I think you can be wandering and unclear about your identity. You could be uncertain about what you believe and who you are and what your role is and, and what your values are. I think you could actually go through life okay uh, without knowing your purpose, without having a mission, without really having meaningful, uh, exciting work. I think you can actually have that when you have a sense of community and belonging. But when you lack community and belonging, no matter how clear you are about your beliefs, your values, your faith, no matter how clear you are that your work matters, you're saving lives, if you go home and you have no one to share that with, no one who knows you, I think it's all for naught. And we know that. We know that on a deeply spiritual level. So we're going to look at a couple stories in Scripture pretty quickly, very fun stories. I like them a lot. And we're going to talk about you and I and what it looks like to design our life, our community life in Christ. Would you pray with me for a sec? Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have uh, uh, helped us have a design for life through watching Jesus. And thank you that you didn't just give us an example and a model, but you gave us his spirit to be able to enact and live out his life. And so help us to uh, uh, think and consider today what that looks like to build the kinds of relationships or restore the kinds of relationships that bring so much meaning to our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. The first quick story, uh, uh, last time I was here, we were working through the book of Acts. It's, it's this, the stories of the first er, er, early church, and, and I continue to kind of uh, read through that, and we're shifting gears a little bit in this series about designing your life in Christ, but there's a really fascinating story. The uh, Apostle Paul, Paul's a familiar name, obviously, in the Bible, and there's another familiar name, uh, a guy named Barnabas, and, and Paul and Barnabas had done these missionary journeys in the early expansion of the church, and it's interesting, if you read Acts closely, it actually starts out by saying Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was this, uh, that, uh, had these uh, pretty entrepreneurial gifts, very, uh, not a larger-than-life presence necessarily, but a very courageous, strong, had a very clearly defined identity and purpose, and he was, uh, he was taking the lead in the early church of expansion and going off into new villages, new towns to bring the message of Christ. And he brought this new convert, this radical young buck named Paul, alongside with him. But there's a, there's a moment where it shifts. Even the, the way Luke is writing the story, it's, it, it, and you could easily miss it, of course, uh, when it shifts and, and it goes from Barnabas and Paul to Paul and Barnabas. And it's almost, uh, the, and there's this moment where Paul really kind of comes out and starts being the one that's uh, uh, proclaiming Christ and doing these really radical things under the threat and penalty of death. 
And, and Paul is, uh, obviously becomes this very gregarious figure, and much of the New Testament is written from his hand, and, uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas. But there's this big dispute that Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas actually broke up for a while. And it's a little interesting stories in Acts 13 and 15. They see these little, it's almost like you're watching a Bravo show about the early church. Like they had this really uh, uh, close relationship, but then they had a breakup. And the breakup was actually over someone else. The breakup was over uh, their, uh, their travel journeys with this guy named Mark, John Mark. Mark was the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark later on after this story. And they had together traveled to uh, a, a place, and it doesn't really matter where it was, but at one point, uh, as they're there, uh, Paul and Barnabas want to go to another town to go preach the Gospel, and Mark goes home. He runs home. It doesn't say why. We don't know why. There's some speculation for why Mark left. Uh, but then a couple you know, chapters later, a couple weeks later, uh, Paul and Barnabas are set out to go again. And Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark. And Paul says, no. Uh, because when the, when the going got tough, Mark skedaddled. Mark left. Uh, Mark's not coming. And then it says that in that dispute, Paul and Barnabas went separately. Barnabas took Mark and Paul went by himself. And I know we've all had the experience, and I would say many of us have had the experience in recent weeks, months, and the last couple of years, where the people that we thought were with us all of a sudden posted something on Facebook, and you realize they're no longer with us. All of a sudden, they, they share something, with some perspective, some point of view, and, and pick a topic, and you've had this moment, I, I'm sure you've had that, where you look and like, oh no, not you too. Oh, gosh. And so it's become so normal for us. It's become so normal for us to distance ourselves, to lean away from somebody based on something that they proclaim. And there's a, a similar thing where Paul and all of a sudden is like, no, we, no I can't, we can't trust Mark if that's the choice that he makes when under pressure. If that's what kind of leaks out of him is this sense of cowardice or fear or sense of reasoning. Uh, Paul is not known for really... Uh, contemplation. He's known for acting first and questioning things later. And Mark is this, the other way. I just can't, and we don't know, is it a personality difference? Is it, uh, was it a theological difference? We don't really know why they leaned away from each other, but they did. And it was no more. No mas, no more friends. We don't travel with that guy. He's on, he's on the X list. He's blacklisted. Uh, it was interesting being on the, uh, uh, being the shuttle yesterday on the way back from the airport to our, where our car was. And my daughter is sitting there, and there's signs all over this shuttle. There's like 40 people in this little shuttle. And my daughter looks down, and she says, look at this sign. It says social distancing in the shuttle. How are we supposed to do this? And everyone laughs in the shuttle. And that term, social distancing, has actually, if you just pick that up culturally, it's done something to us. Lean away from, lean away from each other. Lean away. It's become a default response that so many of us have. Now, there's another story, and it's, uh, I, let's say, top three stories I like in the Bible a lot. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going way back. And I want to read a, a, just a really quick story from this. The, the context is that the uh, Israelites are in this long, drawn-out battle with this country that has a military that is way bigger, way stronger, and has a, a, a ton of technology and, and weaponry. It's the Philistines. And in fact, the context of the story is Israel has uh, been uh, basically neutralized of their weapons. Philistines have taken all their weapons, and there's now only in the entire country two weapons, two swords. 
Saul is the king, and his son Jonathan, they are the only ones with, two, with swords. Everyone else has beaten their, uh, their plows into spears and spikes, and they're, they're taking any sort of metal or wood and turning them into, into weapons. But the Philistines are bigger, taller, faster, and technologically advanced, which is actually no big deal to the Israelites. It's always been that way. From the get-go, they've been outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, but it's never mattered because they turn their hearts and depend upon the Lord and surrender to his power, and God comes through every single time they yield to him, and God comes through and defeats the enemies. So it's actually an old story. It's not a crisis moment, but it's another moment where the Israelites are required to lean towards faith and trusting that God is who he says he is. And so here's the, here's the moment where Saul the king, the one who's supposed to lead them, not just in terms of military strength, but especially towards trust in God. And Saul decides not to do it. And in fact, takes his 600 men far away from the Philistines and camps them and parks them under a giant tree. The shade and protection of a tree away from battle. And this is where we see the story about his son, Jonathan. It says in uh, 1 Samuel 14, Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. And one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now if you've, had a, a, if you've been a, a parent of a teenage boy like I am, you know this is not an unusual story. The idea that a, a, a younger, your son, would do something uh, in defiance of your rules is no surprise. But Jonathan is doing something in this moment where he's deciding to look at the leadership, look at his own father who's hiding and napping under a tree and saying, I'm going to do something. And his only authority, the only authority that he has is under uh, one person under him, his armor bearer, who is likely a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old boy who is not experienced in battle, who is required to carry, it's like the worst job ever, he's required to carry the, the, under, under threats into battle the armor of the soldier in front of him. And so he turns to his armor bearer and says, let's go over to the Philistine outpost. Bigger, stronger, tougher guys who actually have weapons. You and me, young lad, let's go over to the Philistines. Now Saul was standing in the outskirts, and it kind of goes on to talk about again, and the, the writer of this is saying, look, it's, it's this contrast. Uh, it's a great, great storytelling. Saul is back hanging out with his guys, not doing anything, not leaning into what God has always done. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. And so you're, you're seeing that he's going into the cliff and the Philistines are up high. Now, I've only done paintball. I don't know much about combat, but high ground is better, right? So Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, the Philistines. And this is my favorite part. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Now, I've seen Braveheart. I've seen The Patriot. I've seen every Mel Gibson movie. I've seen combat movies. And there's always a moment where the leader turns and says, something to the effect of, follow me into this battle because we have the hand of God on us or we have patriotism. We've got some other higher calling. This is the speech that Jonathan gives to his young armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will do something. And then he qualifies it and says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. 
Now, the armor bearer, let's just get back into his. So you're the armor bearer, and you're following this guy, but you're, that's not, I mean, he's your, he's your guy. He's, he's, he has authority over you. But the king and the real soldiers, the, the seasoned veteran soldiers, combat vets, are back there, and this guy is saying, let's go. And the, even the armor bearer is like, yeah, dude, I know, like, high ground wins, and we're going, and there's Philistines, and this just doesn't make any sense. Time out. I mean, you can, but I, I'm just going to hang back here. That's every rightful reasoning would, would be like that. So here's what he says. Do all that you have in mind, said the armor bearer. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Do all that you have in mind. I am with you, heart and soul. That is friendship. Let me just read the rest of the story because it's a fascinating story. Jonathan says, come on, then we will, see, we, uh, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. Again, if I were to do this as the armor bearer, I'd say, uh, time out. If we're going to have any luck, this is we sneak in with ghillie suits. We, like, we wait till dark. No, Jonathan's plan is let's go out in the open and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So let's go let them see us. And if they say, hey, hold on there, we're coming down to you, we're dead for sure. But if for some reason they say, come on up, uh, armor bearer, don't worry. And then in verse 11 says this, so both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come to up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So Jonathan climbed up and here's, uh, you think of the, the writers of this, they don't waste any words, uh, but he said uh, he climbed up using his hands and feet. Hands and feet, he's climbing up with his armor bearer. They can't even hold a weapon. So talk about vulnerability. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and fields, and the ground shook. And this is where God enters the story. It was a panic sent by God. When does God show up? It was not when Jonathan was praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, how would you have me to respond to this moment where my dad, and God says, hey, uh, I think you should go. He actually had no clue. He said, perhaps, maybe. I know God can. I don't know if he will. And what I've found over time is that the people that I need in my life are not the ones who say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you prayed about this? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what the Bible says. I remember when I was leaving full-time ministry, to go start a company, which in my mind was full-time ministry in a different context, I had five different friends, colleagues that I'd worked with for years, schedule meetings with me to try to convince me why I was abandoning the mission of God. I remember I was explaining to my friends, hey, I really sense that God's taking me into the public school system to bring all the stuff we've been doing in discipleship to students. I think there's like a lot more students that need it who are never going to come to our little Bible studies. Not little, but they're just not going to come. And I've found a way to talk and have conversations with them. And, and I had friends say, I remember this line, uh, Scott, life is too short 
to not preach the gospel. That's what we're called to. And you're not going to be preaching the gospel anymore. And I remember uh, talking to a friend. I said, yeah, yeah. And, th- and there's this opportunity to work with uh, these veterans and, 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 and take this curriculum and help them transition and find out their purpose and figure out their identity and unpack things. And, and he said, dude, I, the, God calls us to go to the least of these. That's not what God's into. And I, it, it's, I spun around for about a year with all these conversations, mentors of mine, friends of mine who we had prayed together and studied God's word together, who had kept saying, I just don't know if that's what God's wanting you to do, Scott. And I never had the chance to say, because it wasn't true, I couldn't say, well, God told me to. I, I didn't know. God never told me to leave what I was doing. I just sensed that that was the right thing. And I wanted to do it. And every time I prayed, I was like, tell me if I'm wrong. Perhaps God will be in this. What I needed and I didn't get except for two people, my two closest friends. Sat down with them at a Starbucks and said, hey, I'm getting all this flack. I need, I, apparently, I, I think I'm kind of crazy. I don't think this is, I don't know, maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe this is ridiculous. Maybe this isn't what I should be doing or I don't have what it takes or God's not in this. I started telling them the story of what I was trying to do and the business plan, and I had PowerPoint slides. And Both these guys, their eyes kind of glazed over after a few minutes. And here's what they said. One guy, they look at each other, and he, he's like, his name is Charlie. He's like, uh, uh, what are you looking for right now? And I said, I don't know. I, I said, Tell me that I'm wrong. I mean, I had all these people, and, and they both look, and they're like, we don't care if you are wrong. And I was like, what, what do you mean? This is my life. This is my, I, I put a lot of time and energy into this. I've been thinking, praying, agonizing. I've got, I got white sticky notes everywhere. I've talked to every single person. And they're like, we don't care what you do. And then my other friend Caleb was like, do you care what I do? And I was like, not at all. He goes, yeah, we don't care what you do. If you want to do it, go do it. We're with you, heart and soul. And that was it. I was like, okay, I'm in. And I've known over the years, every time I get to this point, typically around career, what do I do, discernment, pray, I just remember that Caleb and Charlie could care less about what I do. They're with me. They're with me heart and soul. I've got friends, and I'm sure you do too, that they've posted things and said things, and you're like, that just doesn't, I don't know, that's not what the, uh, and, and you lean away, and you, I guess we can't be, uh, uh, and I've found that the idea of overriding that, no matter what, I'm with you heart and soul, those issues will be worked out, probably not through you. They probably have lots of voices of dissent and make sure you're thinking this through. They've got enough of that. People, I need you just to be with me. Not to tell me why I'm being foolish, why it's not biblical. And I'm not saying, this is what Steve gets to say next week. Steve gets to talk more about how do you listen to people and listen to wisdom. I don't need to cover that today. So don't come up to me and say, well, you know, what if, you're, what if your friend's doing something that's not biblical? We're not talking about that today. And let me close with this story. I got to spend the weekends uh, with my sister. And my sister, uh, many years ago, had uh, gotten married and, and, and then very quickly, within a, uh, I think she would say within a few minutes, realized this is not the right thing for me. And uh, uh, just a few weeks later, it had uh, confided that with me. So I, I feel like I made a huge mistake, and this isn't right, and, and from the get-go, and I shouldn't have. And, and in our story, we had just come from our parents' uh, 
separating and getting divorced, which is very devastating to both of us. And I think she, you know, longer story, but I remember the way I responded to her was not what she needed. And it's taken us years, maybe 15 years, to get back to a place of restoration. I, I sent her emails. That's not what the Bible says. I said, hey, how dare you? That's not what, you know, you just got to stick it out. That's what, and uh, she, I know, felt extremely abandoned. What she needed from me in that moment was, no matter what you do, I am with you, heart and soul. Do all that you have in mind. I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. And the uh, coming back to that, coming back to a place of restoration might be where you're at too. There might be moments or times where you feel like you kind of pulled back on someone and they needed you. They needed you to show up in that moment. What would it look like for you to take a move towards them? All I know is this. The people that I belong to, really, no matter what they do, I am with them. And no matter what I do, it actually gives me great confidence that God is with me because they're with me. They are the figures of God's enduring presence in my life. And I know I can take greater risks. I know I can uh, make mistakes. And God will be there because they will be there. And so what does that look like? Maybe you don't have those people in your life. All I know is maybe God's inviting you to be an armor bearer to someone else, to ask them about what their dreams are, to ask them about what their hopes are and their ambitions. What are they praying about? And no matter what you think about it, even if it's juvenile or it's, ah, say, I'm with you. That sounds amazing. I'm with you. And see what happens as you actually embody the presence of Christ in their life. So let's pray. God, would you help us to establish the kinds of bonds with people that we can say we are with them and they're with us? And through those bonds, through those conversations, maybe even as we uh, uh, try to reconcile and restore and name and apologize and forgive, uh, God, would you do something unique and special? And I believe, God, that as we try to establish some of those relationships, your spirit will come. You will move. You will help us to be in the flow of love, which doesn't break, which doesn't stop. Love always flows. Love always endures. It's always patient. It's always kind. It doesn't pull back. It doesn't unfriend. It doesn't block. It doesn't stop calling. It doesn't avoid at, at Vons. It, it, it doesn't avoid at church. Love always prevails. Love always leans in. And so help us to have that kind of spirit, to have that kind of courage to be in your flow of love. We pray this in your name. Amen.
one last comment. I'm going to pick on men in the room just for a second. I've over the years asked students a lot about the friendships that they've seen modeled by their parents. And the enduring theme I've heard from uh, across demographics, across uh, really thousands of students, I've heard them say, you know what? I'm not sure if my dad has any friends. And, and he knows people, but I, and I, would, I would say probably pretty similar. I mean, I, dad knows a thousand people, but does, who knows him? And I think that's a, a huge, I mean, just the loneliness alone of that, not just the modeling of that. But So men, I would encourage you to consider that. What does it look like for you to have the courage to lean towards someone? And it's incredibly vulnerable to essentially say, hey, can we be friends? It's incredibly vulnerable to disclose yourself. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Here's what's going on for me. Here's the real story. Uh, and, and you might also have friends that you know that uh, the guys that you hang out with, they just don't seem to know how to go there. Well, a really helpful question is, what else? When you're having small talk with a guy and you're just getting the surface stuff, use that question. What else? What else is going on? What else? And maybe the fifth what else, you'll get something close to the real story. And lastly, as, as we pray in closing, uh, some of you might be feeling like you don't have that friend that's with you no matter what, heart and soul. 
And so I just want to pray a blessing over all of us, but you especially, that God knows you and God sees you, that God has someone for you to communicate his love for you, his enduring acceptance, no matter what you've done, no matter how you act, no matter what you think about, what you haven't done, what you haven't lived up to, God is for you and with you, and he always will be. And his voice towards you is, do everything you have in mind, I am with you, heart and soul. Amen.